difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky, coming back in front of the mic from her usual producer position. This week, we're talking about Joel and Ethan Cohen's movies, Barton Fink and Hail Caesar, two films released 25 years apart, but both about the hapless wrecks of humanity working for the fictional capital pitchers at the height of the studio system. They're very different movies. Barton Fink is about a struggling screenwriter, played by John Torturo, alone in a ratty hotel trying to bang out the script to a Wallace Beery wrestling pitcher he has no connection to. Hail Caesar is inspired by real-life studio fixer Eddie Mannix, who handled scandals for MGM, and it stars Josh Brolin as a character named Eddie Mannix, who's trying to manage capital pitchers' constant crises and stable of unruly stars while pondering over an opportunity to walk away and take a lucrative job at Lockheed Aviation. But both films are fundamentally about the trouble of making art, whether that trouble comes from external sources or internal ones, and both of them are write-what-you-know stories about the industry the Coens have lived in for decades. On this half of the podcast, we're going to dig into what connects the two films, look at the Coens' long-running stable of actors, and ask ourselves whether they've changed, their attitudes on Hollywood have changed, or these are just very different movies coming from the same warped sensibilities. Oh, Monty! Come, join me on the divan. It seems Allegra's a no-show, which is simply a bore. But I'll partner you and Gretch. Ha! Would that it were so simple. Cut. 27 apples, take two. All right, all right, let's try this. Your line, just say it as I say it. Say your line exactly as I'm mm-hmm. about to. Okay, sure. Would that it were so simple. Would that it were so simple. Would that it were so simple. Would would that it was... Wait, wait, w- watch my mouth. Would that it was so simple, trippingly. Would that it was so simple, trippingly. No, don't say trippingly. Say the line trippingly. Gosh, I, I can't seem to cinch my saddle up on this. Would that it was so simple. Would that it was... Would that it was so simple. Would that it was so simple. Would that it was so it's complicated. So let's start with uh, with connections. How did you guys feel watching Hail Caesar in terms of like how it connects or doesn't connect to Barton Fink? My first thought after after watching Hail Caesar is is a, you know in some ways it's a rebuke and an apology for Barton Fink, you know, <laughs> uh, which I don't think I I, I think there it implies a level of sincerity that, that the Coens aren't necessarily capable of, especially in Barton Fink or Hail Caesar. But if we encountered in our journey through the many genres of, of Golden Age Hollywood, uh, uh, the, the Hail Caesar visits, if we, if we ran into a Wallace Beery wrestling picture, we kind of get a sense of why a Wallace Beery wrestling picture, though it involves a lot of uh, you know conflicting personalities and behind the scenes machinations, but there's a there's a bit of magic to it. There's, I think there's a little bit of magic to to all of the pastiches and and, and homages of classic Hollywood we encounter here. Like the Channing Tatum musical sequence is wonderful. The Esther Williams homage that Scarlett Johansson performs, is, you know, just beautiful to look at, and it has that really nice touch which you'll you know sometimes see in, in old movies where you can see her 
panting behind her smile as she does it. You can see the effort that goes in, into this performance, too. It's, it's a little... Sometimes the films themselves give you a little peek behind the curtain, and this, to me, was, was a deeper peek behind the curtain. But the Hollywood that Barton Fink encounters, at least, is is a, uh, a corrupting cesspool. Uh, even though it's in a desert, there's still mosquitoes there. But this is a different, this is a different sort of Hollywood. It has its own issues, but ultimately... <sighs> I forget who, maybe it's Amy Nicholson or somebody described it as, as a, uh, a love letter written with a poison pen. And there's a little bit of that, too. It's sort of a, a loving look at something that is uh, perhaps phony and troubled, but but also kind of wonderful in its own way. And one of the lines I wrote down uh, in my notebook when I saw Hail Caesar was, I, I think it was the, the narrator that briefly appears referred to a film as another piece of gossamer, <laughs> which I, I think is, aside from being just a lovely image, is a, a really interesting way to talk about the creation of film in the context that they're they're doing here, and and, and to an extent Barton Fink, like where it's almost disposable, and I think it's it's very interesting that they are dealing with films that are disposable and actors and writers who are interchangeable and kind of wrestling with what it means to make a statement within that that system. I think it, it's it's specifically interesting that they came back to this specific era both times in the studio system and how that butts up against the artistic sensibility or not in the case of Hail Caesar. One connection is uh, their continued contempt for writers with, with a certain uh, leftist ideology. I mean, I don't <laughs> think there's, you know, this is not the most flattering portrait of communist writers that there's that one scene where, where they they're they're bragging to bear whitlock uh george Clooney's character about all the the leftist messages they, <laughs> they, they snuck into films and it, it's maybe he's a dimmer bulb than than most but it's clearly that no one's noticed any of these messages that are supposed to be changing well, things and speaking of barton fink connections like during that scene, they keep talking about the little guy and how, you know, communism is sticking up for the little guy. And uh, they see themselves as the little guy within the studio system. And every time they said little guy, it's like, oh, that's the common man. You know, it's, it's like the same thing. But it's I, I definitely saw some echoes in the, the writers who made up the future and uh, Barton Fink's lofty ideals. You should probably spell out that the the organization is called the future because the yes. writers that make up the future sounds like a, <laughs> right. I don't know, just a very interesting concept. They're, they're kind of the Barton to. Finks who fit in, the kind of the Barton yeah. Finks who worked. Who, well, yeah, the, the I mean, there's the Barton tough. Finks who are comfortable. Like, there's sort of a sense there's there's a little bit of anger in the room in the form of like the one guy who keeps shouting, but for the most part, they seem a little like played by Dave Crumholtz. I was great oh at that. God, oh yeah, so for good. sure. There's so many really great actors in that in that scene, and they don't have their they don't have character names. Mm-hmm. Like they don't stand it out at all. Half of them are credited as uh, you know communist writer number three or whatever. Yeah, I mean, what uh, Krumholtz just has the mustache and he just he shouts parasite every once in a while. Um, but the his, other thing too is his, like it's the other thing too about the writers. Another point in terms of how they fit in is just writers are the single most aggrieved people in the entire <laughs> studio system, and so the film really Somebody captures. In that. the world, <laughs> right? I mean, they just are so powerless. Their work is trampled upon. They get no respect. They get no money. And uh, I think it kind of it feels like. I mean, it's it's less kind of this this communist gathering than just kind of a grousing. Well, session do they get guys. no money? Like the because because the whole thing in Barton Fink is that it's a it's an easy way to make a quick buck a quick buck for a sure, couple of years cre- and that's why why Mayhew credit. stuck around for so long that, you know that, that, maybe it's credit that they don't like I I kind of got the sense that they had uh, nurtured a sense of entitlement over the years that allowed them to develop these highfalutin ideas based in grievances that they may not 
actually have. But I mean, one of the things that draws the sharpest contrast between Barton Fink and Hail Caesar is that there's kind of a sense of like maybe they're meaningfully aggrieved and maybe they're not. But either way, it doesn't matter because this is such a like a no harm, no foul universe. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody gets kidnapped and held for ransom and he has a fine time talking with his kidnappers. Like there's no malevolence there. There are all of these Hollywood scandals that are going on, but none of them are about, you know, somebody that raped a girl to death with a, a bottle in his hotel room. They're all just kind of, you know, she got knocked up and she kind of doesn't want to marry the dude because he's a jerk. Or, you know, oh, we're going to put these two together and make sure that their dating is seen by the local head hopper version. Like, there's no anger like to the movie there's uh, even uh, the whole ridiculous communist plot just kind of amounts to like a Fargo-esque lost briefcase full of money like there's no gain to it there's no benefit to anything that happens you kind of end up in a very burn after reading place as so many of the comedy movies that the Coens make do end up where kind of you're back to square one and not a whole lot has been learned except maybe by Eddie Mannix who's learned that he loves the pictures he loves the industry and he wants to stay with it What's interesting, the amount of sympathy, I guess, it shows toward Manning. I mean, you could paint a portrait of someone like Eddie Mannix that is quite dark. Mm, uh, sure. As a real Eddie Mannix apparently was. Right. And, and this is, and, uh, and I, I can see, I guess, people having their ruffled feathers about them. So you talk about money. I mean, there may be a certain amount of money, but studios controlled everything. They controlled where, who could be in movies and who, you know, where everybody was on the lot. And uh, it's not like anyone had had the kind of leverage that they have today to really negotiate, you know, better deals for themselves or put themselves in better positions. It's, it's a lot tougher. The film doesn't really care about that. The film really respects the idea of the studio of the old studio system as a system that worked as this incredible machine that this guy was kind of, kind of keeping together because Hollywood is full of flakes that have to be sort of brought in line. Yeah, and and, and the, com- the communists protected. are just another, uh, just another group, uh, just another group of people who are out of line. And when uh, you know Baird Whitlock gets sort of roped into that that world, he gets he's got to get it slapped, literally slapped out of him. <laughs> I mean, we may tell ourselves that we're creating something of artistic value, or there's some sort of spiritual dimension to the picture business, but what it really is is this fat cat. Nick Skank, out in New York, running this factory, uh, serving up these lollipops to the, what they used to call the uh, bread and circuses for the, uh, uh. Now you listen to me, Buster. Nick Skank in the studio have been good to you and to everyone else who works here. If I ever hit you bad-mouthing Mr. Skank again, it'll be the last thing you say before I have you tossed in jail for colluding in your own abduction. Eddie, I wouldn't, I would never do that. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> You're going to go out there and you're going to finish Hail Caesar. You're going to give that speech to the feet of the penitent thief and you're going to believe every word you say. You're going to do it because you're an actor and that's what you do. Just like the director does what he does and the writer and the script girl and the guy who claps the slate. You're going to do it because the picture has worth and you have worth if you serve the picture and you're never going to forget that again. Uh, It's notable, I think, that that Eddie has to choose between working for Hollywood and working for Lockheed. The attitude seems to be you have to serve somebody and you may as well be in this rather silly universe that makes uh, wonderful, uh, frivolous motion pictures than, you know, serving an industry that, all, you know, one of its goals is, you know, bettering the, the uh, ways to deliver death from above. Uh, it's, a, it's a topic, is a whole other topic unto itself. But, um, you know, obviously, there, there's not the most reverent take on Christianity. 
But I also think ultimately it is kind of respectful of of Eddie's faith. You know, he is a grown up and a, and a moral person in a world of, of uh, immoral children. And, and uh, uh, there's something kind of noble about uh, about the way he goes about uh, his business in, in a way. Well, he's relatively moral. <laughs> you know, like a, he, he well, he's, no he's trying assumed, to be yeah. trying to be a moral person. As uh, you know, as I have so often said with the Coens, it's not about a larger morality. It's about does he follow his code? Mm-hmm. And he is very, very penitent about even the smallest breaks in his code. Like he's a, what passes for a moral man in their universe because he has his beliefs and he follows them. And he's ashamed when he doesn't. And tries when he to goes more than t- literally when he goes more than 24 hours without going to confession. Like, yeah. I, like I love that detail of like he has the, the hours since his last confession, like down to the minute. <laughs> My son, it's, it's really too often. <laughs> yeah. But Keith was talking about the, the conundrum of staying and working for Hollywood versus leaving Hollywood, which fits really nicely into the first of our topics. Scott? Uh, that would be Hollywood. Um, <laughs> Hollywood? Hollywood. Uh, the, the Coen's relationship to Hollywood throughout their career has been strange because they haven't made that many straight up studio films, but they also haven't, after a certain point, made uh, small budget independent movies either, at least the way we think of a small budget it needs to be. Uh, they've involved themselves quite a bit with labels that have come and gone, uh, like USA Films or Gramercy Pictures, places like that. Uh, they've had their work distributed by boutique labels with studio associations, but they've never quite fit in. I remember when they put in a lo- that, that line from Hudsucker Proxy, uh, you know for kids, <laughs> that, was their, that was their jokey attempt to satisfy you know, their big Hollywood producer, who is Joel Silver. You know who did what Die Hard, right, and uh, and uh, all sorts of other movies that had nothing Hollywood catchphrases in them. Uh, but the Coens obviously have a deep affection for the old Hollywood that comes out in Hail Caesar. Um, you know, we could have done this episode and included one of many movies referenced in Hail Caesar from, uh, you know, Esther Williams' aqua musicals to Ben-Hur, and they owe plenty themselves to movies like Sullivan's Travels and The Glass Key and other classics. And uh, one of the things I love about Hail Caesar is that it's so much cheerier about that world than Martin Fink, uh, which turns Capitol Pictures into a B-movie production facility with a blowhard studio head and a system that grinds up every writer who comes to the door. Hail Caesar admires, I think, at the very least, the, the way that a powerful studio could assert how style and keep their talent in order. Uh, and they especially admire, admire individuals you know, who have that ability to keep the machine running. Well, yeah, and we touched on this briefly in the first part, but the the Coens have kept like their very specialized, specific machine going. Like they are, I wouldn't necessarily call them prolific, but they are steady filmmakers. Like you know, you don't Miller's Crossing, Writer's Block aside, like you don't get the sense that they are necessarily struggling to put films out but also they understand that there's a the mechanics to it and mm-hmm. there's there's a process that has to be done well, and that's and, something that comes through in their style which we'll we'll get into too but they you know they do seem very invested and fascinated with the mechanics of filmmaking i mean there's a great scene in hail caesar in the editing bay with francis mcdormand and uh you know just kind of she is the like the quintessential just like like wonk you know but doing the dirty work kind of literally of putting a film together and almost dies doing it but then <laughs> just continues on because that's what she does you i mean know? she's kind of she's surround, surrounded by these like clacking machines and she's kind of half machine herself mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, for me, like one of the things that struck me most, I guess, about the difference between this film and Barton Fink, just like sheerly in terms of of Hollywood and how they deal with Hollywood. Roger Ebert's review of Barton Fink made the kind of the interesting point that 
all three of their pre-Barton Fink films featured like the image of like a big man behind a desk like bellowing orders. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Blood Simple, I'm just going to read this. In Blood Simple, the guy behind the desk was Emmett Walsh as a scheming private detective. In Raising Arizona, it was Trey Wilson's furniture czar. In Miller's Crossing, it was Albert Finney as a mob boss. In Barton Fink, it's Michael Lerner as the head of the Hollywood studio. All of these men are vulgar, smoke cigars, and view their supplicants with contempt. But when we, by the time you get to Hail Caesar, the man behind the desk chomping on a cigar and like dispensing barking orders, I mean, he's Josh Berlin. He's kind of the hero of the piece. He's the guy who gets things done. And he is, as you say, like literally slapping his stars around to get them in line. He's, uh, you know, ordering uh, Ray Fiennes to, you know, go deal with the ridiculous thing that the studio is making him do, which does not at all work with the art that he's trying to make. So there is a certain dismissiveness Still to the man behind the desk barking orders, but at the same time, that man is is visualized as a very moral guy who at least thinks he's trying to do the best that he can. Let me make two points about that actually, because I don't think he, I don't really feel like Mannix fits that man behind the desk thing, which is which, which is in a lot of Coen Brothers films because he's out in the field all the time. I mean, he, he doesn't stay at his desk. I mean, we, it, you know, the first time we see him, he's out, you know, rescuing uh, one of his stars from, you know, a photography session. Um, so he's kind of out there. And I think that the, 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 the man behind the desk is coming through on his phone and ordering him to do things that make no sense, like put somebody who, <laughs> who you saw see who's a Western star in a costume drama. The way I kind of think about Hell Caesar is like, it's Barton Fink if Ben Geisler was the hero. You know, it, it, you know, Ben Geisler is not a precise analog for Eddie Mannix, but I think that's that's the type because because he's not the head of the studio. I mean, Eddie Mannix is the head of the studio. Ben Geisler is the head of the studio, but they get movies made. But I mean, he's still sitting behind his desk when he gives Ray Fiennes his marching orders. When he gives, uh, he got those marching orders from someone else. I, I, yeah, I, I, but I, he doesn't seem to have a, a damn bit of sympathy for the director trying to deal with this like I completely guess. rational. But thing. I, I see Eddie Eddie Mannix. I, I think when it, you get down to it, he's a very large cog in the machine, but he's still a cog in the machine. Like I don't think he is the the capricious studio head, you know, making these decisions. He's the one carrying out those decisions. Are you suggesting, Tasha, that their sympathies have shifted? from the little man uh, <laughs> to, uh, to to the uh, the big guys uh, over the course. So the guys of the, getting it done. Yeah. Not entirely, but I do think that just as uh, Hail Caesar has a lot more love for what comes out of the process that we see, like Barton Fink failing at, uh, basically, I, I think that it has a lot more enthusiasm for machinery pictures. You know, for the the pictures that come out of specifically this kind of process i don't know there's such a dismissiveness in barton fink towards you know wallace berry wrestling picture do i have to draw you a roadmap like it's obvious big broad you know there's a guy there's going to be some fighting and then there's going to be a girl or an orphan or both whatever there's a sense throughout barton fink that you're meant to be very dismissive of this idea of the formula but the films that we see like in front of the screen in hail caesar are very formulaic you know you've got the the very programmatic visual like esther williams swimming musical you've got the sing and dance you know anchors away take off with the the singing sailors doing their weird pastiche that's sort of <laughs> (laughs) out of South Pacific and it's very very gay like all of these things are don't forget Lonely Old Moon or or you might call it a little fruity 
It is a little fruity, it, it, which is why Wallace Beery is not in there in a in a sailor's cap, um, or the western with it's like it's trick riding and roping and whatnot. These are all very programmatic things, but the film like gives them such affection. Like the if if we did see a Wallace Beery film in this thing, it would be probably seen with a great deal of love. Perhaps I mean I think you could also maybe distinguish between you know some of the films that they're making are probably not of a high quality. I think you can probably see we that. don't make B pictures but, here at Capitol, <laughs> but but. I mean, I think I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd want to see that Channing Tatum musical. That looks pretty cool. Um, and uh, but but, but you I don't have to know. I don't know about, I don't want. Lo- I don't want Lonely Old Moon. <laughs> yeah, what's what's your? Uh, how do you like uh, referring to uh, Channing Tatum? Oh, the Big Brisket. Yeah. He's big, but that's Keith. That's you, Keith. Keith or, origin. Oh, that, the origin was no, Keith. I can't and I thought, oh my god, that's perfect. And then, and then it was one of those memes that you can't Didn't start your own meme. One of these days, one it's going to happen. But yeah, have you given up on charming potato? I mean, I didn't make up charming potato. I can't take credit for charming potato. Oh, well, there's, 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 there's no, there's no credit in Hollywood. <laughs> we don't care about the writer. We don't care who who originated this thing. We're just putting it up on the screen. I don't know. It amuses me that both of you have your own nicknames for Channing Tatum, and that this has been going on for like a decade now. But we share the opinion that Josh Hutcherson is Honeycrisp. Honeycrisp. That's right. <laughs> he stands on the Apple boxes because um, he's so short. Uh, the, but as far as like again, to get back to get back to the quality of the films in the films within the film. I, I think Hail Caesar itself is probably a, also kind of an interesting movie. You know I mean, that this the you not to spoil anything, but there is a speech that George. Clooney delivers at the end of the film that is pretty rousing. Uh, no, am I? Are, you know, I, I agree. I, no, it's it, it's it's wonderful. It kind of ties the religious themes of the film together. And and you know, to say where it goes is, is to spoil something. But but it's uh, it's a very Cohen esque. It takes a very Cohen esque. Uh, <laughs> That's uh, all in the trailer. I, yeah, I know it's in the trailer. I mean, we, I'm not saying that you have to give it away. I'm I just know, saying it's, it's out too there. much in the trailer of yeah. this movie. Yeah, yeah this is a, a movie that I walked out of thinking that was a fun trifle. Like that was a very entertaining Cohen Brothers comedy, but a, a minor work. But I have thought about it so much. Mm-hmm. Since then, and it's because of the things that you're talking about, these themes that they they do a little more than touch on, but it is not they're not nearly as present as they are in, in Barton Fink. But because they're just percolating there under the surface, it it really makes me want to revisit this film, and I regret that I wasn't able to see it a second time before this podcast. Like Burn After Reading in that respect, mm-hmm, which is a movie sure. I've enjoyed revisiting. Uh, I liked it the first time, and, yeah. then, and then I've enjoyed well, revisiting it since. One of the reasons it's so revisitable is because it's so densely packed. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I said in my review for The Verge is just it feels like a TV pilot because they have there are so many characters mm-hmm. that are that get such short shrift. Like Scarlett Johansson in particular, I like. I wanted to see so much more of her. Yeah. And Alden Ehrenreich's uh, cowboy Hobie Doyle, like even Tilda Swinton, like all of these characters, I feel like get such short shrift, which plays into uh, Genevieve. What's your topic? Yeah, uh, my topic is characters. Well, what a coincidence! <laughs> and actually, that is a, a great setup for what I want to talk about specifically. So. I spent a lot of time lately wrestling with the idea of what makes a Cohen character. And it's been a really frustrating exercise because while it's very easy to watch a Cohen Brothers film and say, yes, I'm watching a Cohen Brothers character on screen right now, it's a lot more difficult to put a finger on what induces that feeling. Like you could say that they seem to be drawn to difficult or unlikable characters like Barton Fink or Lewin Davis. But they also have a lot of really affable characters and they're stable too, like Marge Gunderson or The Dude. Uh, You could say that all their characters tend to be marked by at least one major flaw, but that is in no way unique to the Coens. That's one of the bedrocks of good storytelling, you know, the fatal flaw. 
probably the most accurate, if not especially useful thing I've been able to kind of home in on is that they have a pronounced love of weirdos, you know, <laughs> characters who are not necessarily the easiest to relate to. Like, I have a hard time thinking of a Coen Brothers character that I watch thinking, I know someone just like that, or that person is just like me. You know, Coen characters tend to be incredibly interesting and compelling, but not necessarily realistic. And I certainly don't mean to imply that that's a flaw. And in fact, their seeming disinterest in creating likable or relatable characters has allowed them to create some incredibly memorable ones like Barton Fink. But I think this, what I'm talking about here might be a side effect of the fact that, in my opinion, Cohen characters function as storytelling devices, first and foremost. You know, most Cohen characters, I talked about this a little bit in the first segment, they don't really have a complicated traumatic backstory that's driving them. Their motivations don't really extend beyond whatever happens in the story that's being told. You know, they function as narrative devices first and people second. You know, looking at Emanix, what are his primary characteristics? He's religious and he's really good at his job, both of which are traits that tie directly into the points the Coens are making with this movie. Or Baird Whitlock, we only kind of get a sense of his movie star persona. You know, he exists more as a symbol and a plot device than as a person. And Barton Fink, as I said, we don't really know anything about his backstory beyond this play that he wrote that brought him to Hollywood. And again, I don't want to imply that this is a bad thing. And I'm pretty sure we all share the opinion that most movies could do with less backstory for their characters. But I do think it speaks to the precision of the Cohen styles, this idea that the characters in their films only exist to the extent that they function within the narrative of that given film. So they're ciphers, basically. Does that ring true to you guys at all? Or are you going to just bombard me with exceptions to this theory? No, I mean, I think one of the things that makes Coen Brothers movies so distinctive and so frustrating on first viewing and so exciting on first viewing and so like unpackable on later viewings is exactly what you're talking about. That sense that every character has a narrative function to serve, but an awful lot of the characters don't ever actually get to that narrative function. Mm -hmm. They really kind of excel at putting in these tiny characters who don't necessarily contribute to a larger story, but feel like they have backstories Mm -hmm. like Chet and his like weird (laughs) popping out of the basement, like Scarlett Johansson's Esther Williams esque character who like very clearly has like, what is the background that brings this woman with this like queen's accent and this, she sounds like they pulled her off the street Mm -hmm. and stuck her in a bathing suit and, and made her an an elegant superstar. Thoughts about who you might marry. (laughs) I ain't doing that again. I had two marriages. It just cost the studio a lot of money to bust them up. Well, we had to have those annulled. One was to a minor mob figure. Vince was not minor. And Buddy Flynn was a band leader with a long history of narcotic use. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. They were both louses. Marrying a third louse ain't gonna do me no good. I've offered you some very suitable, clean young men. Pretty boys. Saps and swishes. What, you think if there wasn't a, a good, reliable man, I wouldn't have grabbed him? What about Arn Sesselman? He is the father, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. The, the writer's room full of recognizable faces. I kept waiting for each one of those people to break out, especially the photographer uh, played by what? Alex Karpovsky from Girls, mm-hmm. I believe. Oh, yeah. He's just like, he is I all ca- over. I forgot he was in it. Like, and I love him. <laughs> He's all over that scene, just yeah. like leering and, and looming and menacing. And I don't think he has a line and he has no purpose in the story, but he has this sense of being like part of a larger narrative of his own. And there's almost a frustration in that because of a sense of like, I want to know that guy's story now. I want to know Chet's story. Like, I want to know all of these people's stories. But that produces just such a rich and vibrant world because it feels real outside 
outside the boundaries of the, the world it's created. In terms of narrative, I, I, I kind of bristled a little bit when you use the word short shrift to talk about some of these characters within the world of Hell Caesar. And it kind of st- struck me that one of, one of the characteristics of this film and other Cohen films is that we really often stay very close to one person. And if you look at, if you look at Hell Caesar as a movie about one person and all these fires he has to put out, you're not unsatisfied by how minor roles are even for pretty major actors you know i mean you know you don't feel like you've been shortchanged because like their function in the narrative has been served and this is true i, mean, I could have done with an extra channing tatum scene that's, <laughs> that's me. true he, i don't know he, to, to me i just I, the way he departs from the picture is so, so ridiculously so perfect i'm being silly i think i think he's used perfectly it's well it's yeah. well measured but, it, but and it's true of lewin davis it's true of of you know the big lebowski even though obviously um john goodman has a bigger role there but i mean you do in barton fink certainly i mean like we don't see too much beyond their experience or, th- or at least the events are all pertinent to the experience of one person. You know, it's funny. I immediately want to argue with you on that because of a couple of <laughs> Coen Brothers films. And then I immediately think, oh, wait, that's True Grit and No Country for Old Men, both of which come from other writers, both of which are adaptations of existing works. So no wonder they would diverge most from that that formula. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's not a unifying theory, but when I, the examples I'm thinking of, and certainly Hell Caesar, I don't really think about the other the characters other than the central characters being shortchanged because it really is all about that one character. I mean, Burn After Reading is is kind of a big, messy sprawl with a whole lot of characters each having their own little yeah, weird narratives that, going the on. The concept of that film is the star. <laughs> it, it Burn After Reading. That's what's so brilliant about it is that is that just it just has this very incredible I, I can't believe it was a hit is the weirdest thing to me that that film was a hit and what is that concept is that concept just we have learned nothing yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the concept is let's take an enemy of the state like spy thriller and then just make it about something that of no consequence whatsoever where horrible things end up happening around it i mean that's it's a very impressive feat in my opinion to do it to make a movie like that Speaking of burn after reading, and this is something I kind of wanted to, it, it applies to both your topic, Scott, and mine. So this is probably the time to throw it in. And I, I, and that is George Clooney and his integration into the Coen Brothers stable. Because I think you, you could make arguments, but I think it's safe to say he is probably the biggest movie star in the in the Coen sure. Brothers company, you know. And I think it's very interesting. They've got Oscar nominee Jonah Hill now. Oh, that's true. In one scene. But Short I, shrift, I tell yeah. you. But uh, I, I, he I th- meets Leo definition of personhood. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it's very interesting how they use Clooney as kind of like the avatar of Hollywood in their films. And he is like their go-to schmuck. Like in ev- in every single film, he is a fool. You know, he's he's a kind of a vain fool, and I think he's sort of a stand-in for the idea of a movie star, the idea of Hollywood glamour, and uh, I find that and the fact that he seems to love that and goes along with it is wonderful. It's it's a great pleasure watching him play a dumb guy. Yeah, uh, Brad Pitt too, and Burn After Reading. Yeah, I, I, oh, I, I kind of yeah, I feel like Brad Pitt is kind of mimicking his his buddy George in in that performance as far as his willingness to play the fool for them. I mean, it's almost like the Coens create a safe space for actors to mock themselves, mm-hmm. for them to play these really idiosyncratic, like larger than life weirdo roles. I when you you mention how often they just default to weirdos, I I think of the line from Fargo about Steve, 
<laughs> Steve Buscemi and like what a weird, weird looking little guy he funny was. Funny looking, you know, funny looking. <laughs> funny looking. And uh, I you mean, Chet? <laughs> <laughs> well, I do mean Chet because they come back to the same people over yeah. and over. And, you know, once you find somebody with the face of a John Goodman or a Steve Buscemi, like no wonder you keep coming back to them over and over because there is that specificity, that that idiosyncrasy. Well, they love character actors. And I think it's it's interesting how as they've gotten, how they've kind of uncomfortably aligned themselves more with Hollywood, they've taken the approach of making movie stars and or attempting to make movie stars into character actors you know i I don't know that that necessarily works but uh it's definitely interesting and i think speaks to their unique sensibility within the hollywood sphere it's certainly probably fun for actors who have reached a point of stardom where they keep getting offered the same roles over and over you know george clooney doesn't get many opportunities to play clowns anymore Mm -hmm. outside of cohen films but that kind of covers uh, the sty- their style in terms of uh, in terms of writing and in terms of the performances they get. What about uh, the rest of their style? It's the, Keith, I think you've got a topic for us. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big topic. I feel like we've covered a lot of it. Certainly, the acting is a part of it as well. But I mean, I think with the Coens, you're with any film, you're getting a complete world. You're getting something that's been been thought through from from down to the tiniest detail, down to down to the you know the tiniest drips of glue and the and the and no, the. No, don't bring up the glue. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> So the the tiniest uh, bloodstained mattress uh, <laughs> to to the, you know the, the look of the, the, the offices here and uh, Capitol Pictures and and uh, part of what's so charming about Hail Caesar is to see them uh, trying on different styles as uh, these these homages to classic Hollywood but it's still unmistakably a, a Coen Brothers film in that sense I mean Barton Fink's an interesting one too where it feels like they're influences are more pronounced. We, t- we talked about Lynch and, and Eraserhead, and, and they cited uh, Polanski uh, as a strong influence on that film as well. And I think The Shining is is it's huge. But even that, I mean, the influences are so blended. Like, I'm not going to see that as anything but a Coen Brothers film. It's the same with this, although the, the, you couldn't really have two films that, that looked or sounded much different. But they're still recognizably Cohen. There's a precision to it. There's a precision to the language and the camera work and everything about it. I mean, I think I think if you were the Cohen brothers, I, I think someone like Hobie Doyle, the, the cowboy actor who, who's turned into an elegant, uh, uh, um, <laughs> an elegant, finely dressed leading man over the course of one day, apparently, or or the attempt is made over the course of, of one day. I think that would be a nightmare because anything that's going to go wrong or any sort of like any anything any break from the the precision of what they bring to it would would be uh, would throw everything off. That said, I, it doesn't you, neither Barton Fink nor this or any of the movies. They never f- there's not an airlessness to them that you get sometimes with the directors that have, that have thought things through. I mean, these they feel like living worlds, and I think to me that's all that combined is is what defines a Coen Brothers style, even as diverse as the films are. Yeah, in particular, I think precision is just the perfect word for it. You know, you've got so many montages, like so many of these scenes, like tightly edited scenes that just really flow in Coen Brothers movies. And for me, that was one of the big strengths of Hail Caesar. Like, I found the whole editing scene with Francis McDormand actually a little too manic, you know, with the kind of the Looney Tunes effects and whatnot. But all of these, like the, the Channing Tatum dance sequence or... 
like I just go back to sequences in Hudsucker Proxy that are meant to kind of evoke musicals and and montages in the 40s. There's just a speed and a flow and a rhythm to them that is all about like precision. That's all about control. And you mentioned Deakins as a cinematographer. I he just he contributes so much to just these crisp, bright visual uh, films. And as I said before, there's just there's such a, cr- a crispness to Barton Fink, even though it mostly takes place in these very dim, grotesque settings. It is amazing how saturated the colors are in a place with so little light. And I think precision just really covers their style. Totally. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> this is only like kind of tangentially related to this, but I find it interesting that both Barton Fink and Hale Caesar have scenes of characters watching dailies, uh, which sort of more gets back to the idea of like the work involved in creating a film and like considering a film in pieces and how alien and strange that is to watch dailies like both Eddie Mannix and Barton Fink kind of have this experience of watching these weird little excerpted moments of film and it it highlights the the artistry that goes into turning that into what we're seeing, you know, a, a film. Oh, sure. I mean, it also highlights the artifice, like mm-hmm. seeing all of the, all of the failed material around what presumably is the winning shot suddenly makes it seem more miraculous that they got to that winning shot because so much of the other material is so terrible. Well, and if you want to get really analytical and going back to the Coens, like not really liking to talk about their films, like it kind of speaks to the futility of viewing art in pieces. You know, you know, or, or just considering a, a, a single part of it as we are doing now. <laughs> but it's yeah, so much I, fun, though. Yeah, I love that scene in Barton Fink too, because he's he's. It's not clear if he's repulsed by the wrestling or by these burly men, or or if he's just repulsed by movies. You yeah. know, he may. Oh, he, no. You don't really get a sense that he oh, maybe no. he maybe he has, has he has this guy even seen a movie before? <laughs> no, he does, he's done it. I mean, he states several times he's that he's not really into a picture. picture or yeah. just into pictures yeah. generally but uh yeah it's really funny that the compare and contrast there too because you know Mannix is this is his job he's, right. he sees dailies all the time he knows what to expect and and, and in Barton Fink it's like one of the most harrowing scenes of the film like Barton <laughs> Fink is just he's horrified by what he, what he sees and what he's being asked to produce um that's another just immensely eraserhead-esque sequence where he's just he's staring at these images that are playing out for him that he has like no involvement in and no control over like that's something that happens over and over throughout Eraserhead and with just the same sort of sense of existential dread just being confronted with how with what a movie is and how 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 the sausage gets made i mean that's that's a whole different thing than just than thinking abstractly about actually writing writing a movie or converting his sensibility onto film that's a, these are you know, actually making a movie is such a different thing. Yeah, I mean, even though we kind of see the the failure of movie making, like what it looks like, especially with uh, Hobie's attempts to to play a slick gentleman, we also, I think, in Hail Caesar, get this very idealized view of of filmmaking. Like, yeah, the studio is stepping in and being very controlling. Yeah, they're all being like they're all dealing with with orders that they marching orders they don't necessarily want to follow and mandates that they're having trouble with. But you still see that 
like the dancing sequence with Channing Tatum or the swimming sequence with Scarlett Johansson, they play out in these like long, perfect takes as though they're being shot, you know, without outtakes, without pauses, without like any need for editing. It all just kind of flows smoothly in front of you, which is, I don't know, just this very dreamlike version of Hollywood. That's a kind of a dreamlike place. I think they often go to with their films. I think though it matters and hell Caesar that, that everyone is in their proper role. I mean, that's that's what sort of plays out with uh, mm. with Hobie Doyle. And that when you see him in Westerns or you see him out in the world in certain circumstances, there's just no one more at ease in the film than him. I mean, he's, he's so charming. God, I love that character so much. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then, and then, of course, when he's, he's just pl- a sucker for rope tricks. Oh, the rope tricks! God, what a wonderful touch. And I almost don't. Again, I don't know if the Coens were capable of doing that early in the career to have a scene like the one where Hobie is waiting for this date to be arranged and he's playing with the lasso. I mean, that's just a wonderful whimsical touch. It's my favorite scene in the film, and not just for the you know joy of watching him do rope tricks, but just like that the way that shot is actually composed with the city kind of stretching behind him is. It goes back to the precision, the the word we keep talking about. Like even when there is this incredibly fun, silly thing happening in the foreground, it's still so thought out as the entire picture. Yeah. You sure. know, the more I think about it and the more I kind of looking through their filmography here, the more I think that one of the reasons that stands out is because so few of their characters are comfortable in their own skin. So few of their characters are capable of relaxation, are living in a place emotionally where they're not dissatisfied either with their situations or themselves or the people around them. And there's just such an ease to that sequence that's like, you know, he's he's where he means to be and he's having a good time. Like apart from um, Brad Pitt in Burn After Reading, maybe a few other characters, I can think of an awful lot of very unhappy Coen Brothers characters, major and minor, and not a whole lot of like generally relaxed ones. Maybe you have to be a little dim (laughs) to make it work. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. I I think, you know, in some ways I feel like Marge Gunderson in Fargo kind of colors my view of the whole. She's like the exception to everything. I feel like everything we talk about. Yeah, but I feel like in some ways she she colors my views of the entire filmography where it's like it's a harsh world full of cynical people. But there's also Marge Gunderson's in it. And I I think in some ways that, that the fact that they created that character kind of puts even all the other films that she's not in kind of in, in a, in a makes you see them in a different light as well. She's also one of their only great female characters, which is something like I don't really want to get too deep into, but was kind of highlighted for me watching these two films back to back. Well, she's, uh, but she, I think if you think about the Coens as having this moral universe, she's the, she's the, she's definitely mm-hmm. the right. sun. She's the center of that, of that moral universe. I mean, we don't need to get deep into it, but I do have a, a certain affection for Judy Davis in Barton Fink mm-hmm. as one of their female characters who not only serves a narrative purpose, but just seems to have an inner life. An awful lot of their female characters are, as you say, they're, they're kind of narrative impediments or narrative pushers, and they don't necessarily seem like they have much going on outside. They don't have that sense of backstory nearly as often as the, like the really idiosyncratic male characters do. And Judy Davis plays this character in Martin Fink who's just so confident and sure of what she wants. And like she's in a very unpleasant and ugly place where none of us would want to be. But 
you know, one of the things that the Coens do, I think, is find ways for characters to be, if not comfortable in their own skin, at least comfortable in their skill sets. And she comes across as somebody who knows what her skill sets are and, and is good with them. So what do you make of the fact that she needs to die in order for Martin Fink to finish his script? Like we, we didn't, I kind of wanted to touch on that in the first half and we didn't have room for it. But I think it's, it's very interesting that she kind of functions as this would-be muse and shortly after she is brutally murdered is when Barton Fink is finally able to produce a script all in one night. And it's tempting to read that as a comment on the idea of the the dead woman as the instigator of action in so many films. Sure. I mean, it's kind of a classic fridging. Or a comment on muses in yeah. general. Sort of a dark, dark comment on... on uh, yeah, on, I think it's a very you... smart yeah. thing that, they, that they're doing there, but, you know, we didn't really get to unpack it. But I mean, it's also, it's just sort of the classic thing of like, he finds something that for a moment gives him comfort in the world. And so it's got to be immediately taken away from him and in the most grotesque way possible. And it becomes kind of a classic fridging because we focus so much on his guilt and pain and what comes out of it. But I don't think that 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 undermines her place in the story. I don't think it undermines the richness of her character before she dies. We should uh, start to close out. Um, I just wanted to touch fairly briefly on uh, my topic was just movies about movie making. It strikes me as interesting that so many films about what it's like to work in the film industry made by filmmakers, so much of them have a like a slightly self-pitying or slightly navel gazing quality. And so many of them are about how crazy this industry is, how corrupt this industry is, how hard it is to make art in this industry. How do I get out of this industry? Do I want out of this industry? And I think it's interesting that Barton Fink is so dedicated to this vision of this guy who doesn't belong in the film industry, wants out and kind of gets his last sad triumph by walking away from literally the burning wreckage of his attempt to be in the film industry. Whereas Hail Caesar, you have someone who spends the whole movie trying to decide whether he wants to walk away to what looks like a much better life and deciding in the end that, you know, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. I don't know if that resonates for anyone or if it just sort of seems, I mean, does it seem like the Coen brothers are happy where they are finally? Or, you know, is it just sort of the gag ending that they need to uh, accommodate this feather light. I mean, I think it's interesting that Hail Caesar actually engages with the idea of like movie magic and you you get to see, you know, these set pieces that we're talking about, the Channing Tatum Tatum musical sequence, Scarlett Johansson's Esther Williams pastiche. But Eddie Mannix as a character is sort of blind to this magic, like it's all happening in the background for him, but we actually get to see it. Whereas in Barton Fink, there's really none of that magic. The only actual film we see, I think, is the dailies of the wrestling picture, the I'm going to kill him or whatever, (laughs) you you know. So I think with Hail Caesar, they are sort of acknowledging the ephemeral magic of movies that the effect it has on audiences like I I don't know about you but I was grinning like a loon that entire musical sequence you know and and, but the fact that they include this Eddie Mannix character who's inoculated to that magic because it's just part of his his daily job is maybe kind of speaks to their relationship with movie making at this point in their careers you know one one influence we didn't mention in terms of barton fink and it's certainly one that's that's 
year too, and and very explicitly referenced as the title of one of their films is is uh, Sullivan's Travels, which is mm-hmm. sort of deals with that uh, question uh, pretty directly. And and uh, looking for sincerity is kind of a, f- a fool's errand because even if you sign off on the whole, yay, they did, it's it's a celebration of movie magic. It's still a fairly ugly system that that produces that with oh, a it's, lot. Yeah, of, it's undercut at every turn. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so you know, there's there's a kind of a double consciousness involved in watching this and other Coen Brothers films. But I think ultimately they they they're movie makers. They probably ultimately come down the side of movies in in one form or another. Alt- in the end, uh, you know, I think maybe there's also a thing too about uh, in terms of movie magic with, with this film where maybe they feel compelled to remind audiences that there are people behind the scenes that are responsible for this that they don't see. You know, all these incredible things happen that are totally enchanting, but there's a lot of business that has to get done in order to make that happen. And so, so this is a film that kind of shines a light on that in a very affectionate way. Well, ultimately, there's a lot of frustration, I think, both behind the scenes of any movie and behind and in front of the scenes in any Coen Brothers films. But, uh, I mean, you can judge for yourself. Barton Fink is available on Blu-ray and DVD and many different solo and batched versions. It's on video on demand services. Hail Caesar is currently not doing immensely well in theaters. So see it while you can, because any movie that's this much about the glory of the classics really deserves to be seen on the big screen. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call this Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, you want to kick us off? Um, Sure. Um, You know, I I decided to kind of keep this thematically appropriate or something like that and, and recommend another Coen Brothers film that you can watch. In less than four minutes. Oh, I know what this is going to be. Uh, this is a film. Uh, it's on U- YouTube called World Cinema. Uh, it was made for a uh, one of those anthology movies called uh, To Each His Own Cinema. And uh, it was made right around the time of No Country for Old Men. It's got... Uh, it, the premise is very simple. It's got Josh Brolin in what pretty much is No Country for Old Men character. He's got a cowboy hat on. He goes into a movie, not a, a theater with two, two screens, not knowing what he's getting into at all. And the two movies are The Rules of the Game, the Jean Renoir film, The Rules of the Game, which is being uh, listed as Le, under its French title, Le Regle de Joux, and uh, Climates, uh, the the newish film by Nuri Bilgeselan. And he, has to do, he is talking to the ticket salesman about which one of those movies he should see. And uh, I kind of just want to leave it at that because uh, that is the premise of the thing. And it is, uh, it's a lot, it's a fun movie and just a great, you know, movie lovers. It's an affirmation of the power of cinema and, and the power of, of really, he, I can spoil that he does choose choose climates, but uh, uh, really somehow a film from such a faraway place can engage someone who you wouldn't necessarily think would be uh, all that excited by it. So, uh, <laughs> so I would really recommend checking it out and it will take less than four minutes of your time. Awesome. I'm going to jump in with mine then since it will actually take less than five minutes of your time. In fact, I may spend more time describing it than it would take to actually watch it. Uh, you guys might be aware that like fairly recently there was some sort of big sports ball game that people were <laughs> excited about until they watched it and they decided it was a boring version of that <laughs> sports ball game. The Super Bowl for some reason gave people occasion to repost this sequence of Debbie Reynolds in a 1963 mm. movie called yes. I Love Melvin. <laughs> you will also see seen the sequence yes it is one of the bat poop wackiest things i have ever seen just like a football she is dressed like a football she is being passed around from player to player it's it it 
kind of gives Channing Tatum's semi-homoerotic dance in uh, Hail Caesar a run for its money in terms of uh, waggling male butts as they <laughs> play out this sort of stylized version of the big game passing Debbie Reynolds in a skimpy football costume around from person to person and uh, occasionally kicking her across the field as she flies through the air. Uh, you can find it all over the internet. It's on YouTube. It's on Tumblr. It's on Facebook. It got reposted a lot. I'd never seen it before. It will blow your mind. Just search for Demi Re- Debbie Reynolds football. I love Melvin. <laughs> Do you know anything about the rest of the movie? This is not a movie. Very little. Donald Con- Donald Connor is in it, um, and uh, there are other sequences from it posted here and there that mm. are less crazy, but also kind of crazy. Um, I keep meaning to look into like whether it's largely available and whether I can watch the whole thing somewhere. Haven't done that yet. Maybe I'll do that while uh, other people are giving their recommendations. Keith, what are you recommending this week? A movie I really wanted to see in the theater and yet for various reasons couldn't get to. And then, you know, some people weren't that into it. It's like, okay, I, 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 I'm, I'm going to seek it out and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to watch it. And then again, uh, life and, and scheduling and children and various things got in the way. But it's always a movie I was going to watch despite uh, some mixed receptions. And, and you know what? I loved Crimson Peak, which I, uh, uh, yeah, which I, uh, um, and I'm somewhat baffled that others don't love Crimson Peak. It's just a beautifully stylish film, of, you know, flawlessly executed uh, stylistically. Uh, you know, we talked about the Coens immersing people into the worlds of their film. This is just sort of creates this dank dangerous 19th century you know late 19th century america and even more upsetting uh late 19th century england uh you know i don't want actually if you don't know the plot of it i don't want to give too much away but mia wazakowska is an aspiring writer and heiress uh soon to be heiress to a fortune and in the course of the film becomes the heir to a uh, heiress to a fortune uh who uh is romanced by uh tom hiddleston who is a uh, an aristocrat uh, with a, a great scheme to make money, uh, but not a lot of money with which to execute that scheme. And uh, there are ghosts, and there are schemes, and there is Jessica Chastain oh. in a performance mm-hmm. that is, you know, unless her <laughs> hands would have been over the top, but just kind of just perfect, just perfectly, you know, uh, you know, uh, the perfect villainous. Um, not to give too much away, but you know, she's the villain. Oh yeah, she's, <laughs> she's, um, she's so great. In that. Uh, and it uh, pays homage to everything from like Turn of the Screw to Roger Corman's uh, Edgar Allan Poe movies, and and uh, I loved it. Please uh, go, you know, yeah. seek it out now. And I, I know, as uh, you said, a, a lot of people did not care for that movie, but I was amazed and appalled that it did not get any recognition on the technical side <laughs> from by the Academy, like even just. Cop- Costumes, set production, art design. Del Toro is just one of the most technically, you know, accomplished filmmakers, and 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 just you know the way it's it's you know the camera movement, the way it's cut together, and 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 yeah, and again the costumes and the colors, and and then you know there aren't many directors that that are very much working in the CGI era, but in a way that makes them feel not not CGI. Kind of like... It's visceral in the yeah. same way that Barton Fink is, I think, where you just kind of like, you get a yeah. little like, you know, crawl up your spine. Well, part of the reason it's visceral is because they built that house. Right. They wanted that house. Like it was just, it was part of his vision that it be a real place. And that is one of those movies that even if you don't care for the movie, just dipping a toe into the behind the scenes story and like what it took to make that film mm-hmm. is so fascinating. Well, it's such a wonderful set too. this, this, 
crumbling mansion, like just the idea of a house that is incapable of actually sheltering the outside element, sheltering people from the outside elements and, and uh, the snow pouring down through. Anyway, I, I, have, I have to, I have to, the, my favorite reaction to the film, this was on Twitter by a friend of ours named Sarah. She was, I guess, mocking, having a sort of mock conversation where it was like, uh, the line readings are stiff, and she she's like, "Who gives a bleep? The snow is bleeding," <laughs> <laughs> which is like, absolutely correct. My favorite reaction it. to that film was my reaction. I wrote a piece for IO9 about how how that mm. film like that typifies like everything that that Guillermo del Toro does. And the only reason I feel like I can get away with recommending myself on this one is Crimson Peak made it clear to me how to interpret all his films in a way that none of his films like it it was just it was the piece that Tell popped me. into place for me. What's, uh in what's the short in short, the elevator pitch is all of his films are fundamentally about reconciling yourself with the past and learning to let it go. Hmm. And they address it in very different ways. And I get into a lot of detail in the piece. You can find it on io9. But fundamentally, the reason he loves ghost stories so much, the reason he makes so many of them, the reason he produces so many of them, and the reason he comes back to ghost-related themes is because a ghost is a piece of the past that will not dissipate that's stuck in time and has to be exercised has to be let go in some way there's a lot more to it but that's that's the, that's the nut of it it sounds convincing it is convincing you know what else is convincing i love melvin is available on dvd it's a uh, it's a musical apparently about a struggling actress and the football sequence is uh her appearing in a kitschy broadway show so it's a story inside a story you can uh, you can find it on DVD via Amazon.com and other services. Genevieve, would you like to recommend something to us? Yes, I brought a film-related item, <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm, I brought it with me. I'm going to hold it up and see if Keith knows yes, what, ooh, what I uh, yes. And it's, it fits right into the yes, stuff we've been talking I, about. Yes, I, uh, this was just kind of a perfect cross-section of the two movies that we're discussing here. I am holding up a comic book in three parts or three acts. In this case, it's called The Fade Out. It's written by Ed Brubaker, who is probably most well known for writing Captain America for a really long time, including the arc that would become uh, the Winter Soldier film. And it's it's set in the exact era we're talking about, the studio system era of Hollywood. Like I said, it's a perfect cross-section of Barton Fink and Hail Caesar in that it's a crime story, it's a noir, but it's also like a deep dive into this very specific era of Hollywood and the studio system. The main character is a frustrated writer. The Hollywood blacklist factors into the story and it really gets into what it means to be a pawn more or less in this system. And Tasha, this is for you. It passes the Bechdel test. Even though the story is kicked off by a murdered woman, it has a kind of an amazing female character at the center of the story. And, you know, I, when I started reading the book, I was like, oh, it's about a tortured, drunk white male writer. But the two central female characters are very interesting. And I think the story does right by them while also being this really dark and traumatic story that revolves happens to revolve around a dead woman uh, a few eddie mannix in a way too. yeah yeah um definitely it's a really compelling read with gorgeous gorgeous artwork by sean phillips and colors by elizabeth brightweiser and it has just a lot of really direct specific references to this period in hollywood clark gable factors in briefly if you've recently done this double feature that we've covered today and aren't you know quite ready to leave this world yet I'd highly recommend this book. It's The Fade Out, and it's available in uh, collected trade paperback in three parts. And yeah. it's currently available in Genevieve's lap. Yes, and I, brought I, can, it, I brought it in I case anyone would like to borrow presume, it. I presume, 
album that you brought it so I could jerk it out of your hands right now yep. and run off with it. All right. Well, that means we're going to wrap up this podcast so I can go get reading. Uh, before closing the book on this week's episode, we should reveal the movie pairing for our next episode, which comes out March 1st and 3rd. Most of us have already seen The Witch, the debut film of set and production designer Robert Eggers, which takes an extremely well-researched, emotionally intense look at a family on a 17th century farm that may or may not be troubled by actual witches. It's hard to communicate exactly how excited we are about this deeply idiosyncratic personal film and how different it is from anything we've seen in a long time. Specifically, it's different from anything we've seen since 1973, when Robin Hardy's The Wicker Man took Edward Woodward on a terrifying journey into a similarly isolated community that's having pagan troubles. We'll be looking at The Witch and Hardy's original version of The Wicker Man in two weeks, which gives you a little time to get caught up on my interview with Robert Eggers at The Verge and Scott's interview with him at Rolling Stone. Either one of those interviews should give you an idea of why we all love this film. Except for Genevieve, who hasn't seen it yet, because she's scared. <laughs> <laughs> the Wicker Man is actually one of my all-time favorite films, so uh, just make sure you don't actually watch the Nicolas Cage remake and show up in two weeks, hoping we'll answer the question, how to get burned, how to get burned, how to get burned! <laughs> In the meantime, we would love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Barton Fink, Hail Caesar, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before we close out this episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott. Uh, well, you can find me at NPR, Variety, uh, Vulture, New York Times, Washington Post, Rolling Stone, Uprocks, and Oscilloscope's uh, uh, musings. Uh, what about you, Keith Phipps? Wait, wait, wait. are you on uh, a social media uh, such as oh, Peach? Yes, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, yes, we all really need to hear um, about your you can Peach also, show. Okay, membership. you can also find me uh, on Twitter at at Scott Tobias and on Peach at at Scott Tobias as well. I'll be doing a little doodles and playing Peach Ball. So peach, peach Ball is a new thing. Peach still exists. I love it. Still, still, yeah, all yeah, these weeks later, all the time. Uh, Keith, what about you? Um, I'm at Uprox behind the scenes and a little bit in front of the scenes. And on uh, social media, Twitter at KFIPS3000 and then also on Peach at KFIPS3000. I, I think my Peach app may have deleted itself. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. What about all your Batman sketches? <laughs> Lost like, like, like tears in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> Genevieve, who are you on Peach? <laughs> I enjoy peaches, if that helps. <laughs> they are my favorite yeah. fruit. Um, but I am on Twitter. You can find me at Genevieve Kosky, and I recently wrote about the Coen brothers at GQ. You can seek that out. And you can follow me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson and writing film reviews and general entertainment articles at The Verge. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show via Twitter at NextPitcherPod or by visiting NextPitcherShow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks again to Genevieve Kosky for producing the show. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks again to Genevieve Kosky for sitting in that editing room surrounded by clacking machines and occasionally getting dragged in almost to her death. And thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. And finally, we'd like to thank our parent podcast, Film Spotting, for all their help, input, and support. Please tune in next time and keep this in mind. It's much too dangerous to jump through the fire with your clothes on. Please practice safe paganism while watching The Wicker Man. We'll be searching high and low on the deck and down below. But it's a crying shame. Oh, we'll see a lot of fish, but we'll never clock a dish. We ain't 
gonna see a day. No day.